Hi, I'm Michael London. Welcome to Spidcast, the future of collaborative video production brought to you by Spidvid.com and sponsored this week by Indie Source Magazine, where they believe free is better. And you know what? I think they got a point. On this episode, we're talking with Brittany Powell, an actress you've seen plenty on episodic TV and movies, too, and lots of other things. Also, David Beeler will be here. He's an actor, writer, and web creator. David is certainly one of the pioneers of the new media, and he has a great story to tell that will take us to at least two continents. First up is, well, ladies first. She's an actress, producer, and I'm told an all-around awesome chick. Brittany, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So, tell us a little bit about Brittany. Well, um, I'm an Army brat. I've traveled the world just in being an Army brat, because that's what we do. Uh, and I would say that translates into why, one of the reasons why I moved to Los Angeles, uh, the career path of an actor is very much a person who has to fit into new environments quickly and make themselves at home and... Um, make new friends randomly and get sent across the, the world to go on location and so forth. So I find that uh, being an army brat was good training for being an actor. <laughs> well, I can see that. So where was the very last place you were right before Hollywood? The very last place I was before I came to Hollywood was a little town in Texas right outside of Dallas-Fort Worth, which has grown exponentially since I've moved away. And that was well, I won't say how many years ago that was because I'm still only 29 years old. And what is the name of that little town? It's uh, Mansfield, Texas. In fact, I just found out from uh, I just found out from my parents that Kelly Clarkson now lives in Mansfield, Texas. I knew that she had been from Burleson, but I had no idea that she went ahead and made the big move to Mansfield. Well, you'll have to fight her now for hometown girl billboard space. I know. When I come to town, she better scoot aside because I want to be on the front page of the newspaper. Don't blame you. So tell us about that path. Uh, Army brat lived in 10 or so places, new school every year. Well, actually, when I was about six, I would say... I started, my father was an officer, so he would always get options of where we were going to be stationed next. And I swear to God, that's when I would pull out the map and a ruler. And whatever was closest to L.A., that's the one that got my vote. So when we had the opportunity, I was born in Germany, but then we moved back to the States and traveled a bit. When we had the opportunity to go back to Germany, of course that's the one my parents chose, but I'm thinking, no, no, I think Phoenix is a better option. Phoenix, because it's closer to L.A., Good thinking. And what about early performing opportunities? Mostly I started just doing family stuff. Whenever we would have family functions, I would write little plays and I would enlist the help of the friends and families that were there and make them perform. And then I would get, I didn't understand when they would get nervous in front of their parents. I'm like, we're just acting and they're your parents. They love you. Just do it. And then I would get all frustrated if they got all nervous. <laughs> Um, and then I started doing community theater. Um, I did, I would do UIL competitions, and they were one-act play competitions in high school. And what I realized was that I would win. And I loved getting the ribbons and the trophies and stuff, but I realized very quickly that if I moved to Los Angeles and did this as a living, that I could get those little green bio survival tickets that we call dollar bills. And 
those were my trophies that I preferred. So I just went ahead and I was like, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to make my living doing this. All right. All about the Benjamins. Uh, what uh, What is a UIL competition? UIL competitions, they're one-act play. So you'll take an entire play and you'll go through it and just start editing down lines or even scenes and turn the entire play into one act. And then you perform them uh, starting at the you know, just the little district level, and then you would move to regionals. And, and if your entire cast continues to win, then you go on to state and, and so forth. Um, our cast never actually made it to state. We were always beaten by Martin High School. So I'm going to go back and punch them. Darn those Martin High goons. <laughs> so we fast forward a bit, and you finally land in Hollywood. What do you think? I loved it. I I originally came out to Hollywood because I accidentally um, was in Playboy. You know, those girls of kind of things, just one of the little, you know, those little side picture ones they do. And the editor saw that, asked me to be a playmate. So they started flying me out to Los Angeles a lot. And when I was out here, I was meeting agents. And they told me point blank that I'm marketable, that um, I'm talented, and that if I would just move out here, that I could actually start booking work. So that's what I did. I just packed up my little car and, and tripped it on out here, and I started booking work right away. They were right. So that's what brought me to Los Angeles. And then once I got out here, um, I, I really I started booking work right away, lots of commercials and a lot of uh, episodic television, you know, anything that Aaron Spelling had done. Wait, wait, wait. Tell us where we've seen you. Oh, my goodness. Anything Aaron Spelling has ever done, I've been either – a recurring role for half the season, or I've been a series regular for, uh, like, Pacific Palisades. I was a series regular on that. Then Stu Siegel Productions, he would do all of the, you know, uh, Silk Stockings and Renegades, all those kind of shows. And so they would bring me down and just keep constantly casting me in those shows. And then um, Nighttime Episodic was the majority of my career. And then films. Um, I had a little, not a little film, it was one of Icon Pictures' uh, first venture into feature films. That's Mel Gibson's production company. And that was a movie called Airborne, which is a coming-of-age movie, and I was the lead female in that. Uh, Just the cutest little movie, and I still meet people today, kids who are still addicted to it. And, in fact, I went and rented a car the other day, and the guy behind the counter, I walked in, and he looked at me and he goes, Airborne, right? I was like, what? How do you know this? I'm like ancient compared to those days. How do you even still recognize me? So he says airborne in your first word should have been upgrade, right? <laughs> oh, yes. And don't think I didn't. <laughs> I got the upgrade. <laughs> Good for you. So you're really living the working actor's dream. You're working a lot. You're being seen. You're making your contacts. All in traditional media. Then you take a sharp right and head into the web world. Tell us about that. Ah, this. I owe to my business partner, writing partner, acting partner, best friend, Tom Conkle. I was at an audition for a commercial, and I was just kind of being a little smartass, kind of in my own little world, but funny, you know, like, I don't know, it was kind of quirky. And I realized there was a human being very close to me who was laughing at all of the, the twisted things that I would say out loud to myself. And so he and I started saying weird, twisted things out loud to each other. And um, 
after the audition, I followed him to the parking lot, and I told him that I have to know him. And we became friends, and he had been working on a script called Safety Geeks SVI, and very Monty Python-esque, but in getting to know me, he realized that I was the lead female that he had written. And that started our ventures into the web world. It got a wonderful reception. Immediately, we were one of the first one, first web series that was actually funded by an outside source. So it was a, a platform called Coldcast. They went ahead and um, paid for it, and it went crazy. We started winning awards, uh, you know, nominated for Streamy Awards and uh, LA Web Fest Awards. It just it got an amazing reception, and that's when we realized we were really onto something. And then Tom had also in the past had worked with John Cleese, who saw it and decided that he wants to be in our. Um, we're not going to call it a second season. We're going to call it a. Um, a sequel because we're turning that actually into a feature film instead of the web series. But we will also, you know, it will be on the web as well. So John Cleese, we have him on board. Virginia Hay wants to be in it. It's so silly and it's ridiculous and it's so our humor. So that got us going. Then we decided based on that, you know, other people were asking us to be in theirs, doing cameos, and so we were doing that. That's when we realized that we're going to start our own YouTube channel, which we've recently launched. It's Romcom the Series, so you can find that at YouTube forward slash Romcom the Series. And it is going to be Tom and I playing different characters, romantic comedy, just silly stuff, our humor. The one thing that we did notice with that is that we posted some of what we find to be romantic comedy. And our, in, in researching the demographics, we're realizing that we're serving an underserved market, which is people our age watching the Internet looking for more mature romantic comedy. So we started posting we, a few things up, and when we first put, we just put up a silly sex scene, really fun, romantic, but, but a bit off the wall, and uh, we were getting about 1,000 hits an hour when we first put it up, and it's continuing to grow. Goodness gracious, sounds like it. Now, John Cleese, decidedly silly, and then romantic comedy, who exactly is your audience? Females love what we're doing. The, the main genre we're serving right now, our demographic on there is 60% female, um, within the ages of 18 through 54. So what we want, actually, is for people to... Email us at Tom and Britt, spelled with one T, um, three eight four at gmail dot com. Tom and Britt three eight four at gmail, and start emailing us some of their ideas of what they would like to see. Like if they actually did have the weirdest little romantic scenario in their life, we want to recreate that. We want to write it and put our own spin on it. But we want their ideas, what they find to be funny and romantic. And then we're going to put those up as well. And we've fortunately found that people are finding it funny as well, which is nice because sometimes you put something up that you think is funny and they just run the other direction. But we're, they seem to like our weirdness, which is cool. And you'll know. You'll know right away, like you've seen before with the hits. Yeah. 
and I'm very, very fortunate to t- have Tom as my business partner because he loves computers. So he has all the different spreadsheets and everything that are telling us what countries uh, are from. You know, for instance, Safety Geeks, when it first launched, we were very big in the United States, but now we're finding Saudi Arabia. We're, we're spiking in Saudi Arabia right now, and we can't exactly explain it, but we aren't going to complain about it. <laughs> Yeah, no need to explain it. Just enjoy it. So, honest question time, all right? You're doing well. Your career seems to be on the uptick. Features, episodic TV. You meet Tom. Tom approaches you and says, hey, want to do some stuff for the web? Really now, what do you think? I'll tell you what. The, what first caught my attention and to say yes was the interaction that I had with Tom. And I knew that we could create something that was unique and I knew that we could create something that made me happy. It was our product. We had control over what we were putting out, and we had control over how it was put out. That got my attention, because a lot of times you'll go into a sitcom, and you have to do exactly what those writers said, and they might not have quite your same personality, but you do it because it's your job. And I love my job. However... I love being able to tell Tom, can we twist it this direction as well and have it still be as funny? And then we can mull it over, we can, uh, you know, twist it, tweak it, and do that sort until we make it what we want. And then we put it up, and if people like it, they like it. If they don't, that's okay. Because somebody likes it. There's not one guy sitting in an office somewhere that it's his opinion of what's funny. It's actually out there for the public to determine, and if they like it, they can go to it and watch it. Now, you know what? For my money, that is the single most exciting thing about this venue. No gatekeeper. So literally now, being a pioneer, how about some words of advice for those coming up behind you? I think my main bit of advice that I would give to people coming up in the web world would be really pay attention to what you're writing, because you can't just write something and throw it up and expect it to hit. You know, you've got to pay attention to the actual quality of the writing and then pay attention to the quality of production. You know, a lot of people on the web, they'll have an idea on the weekend and then they'll shoot it over the weekend and get their friends together and they're not real actors. They should hire real actors to portray the characters they've written instead of saying, I want to be on TV, so I'm going to write something and just put it up there. Don't just put it up there. Make sure it's good enough to represent you as a writer, as an actor, and as a producer. Because that is what, I mean, it's going to live on the web forever. And if you're just putting up crap, then that's what people, when they do go back 10 years from now, and they're like, who's this person? And they go back and see it, they'll be like, no, they suck, I don't want to watch it. So truly pay attention to the quality of what you're doing and, you know, play to your strengths. Wonderful words of experience there. So Playboy, did it hurt or help? You know what? Playboy helped, I have to say. It was right around the time when Pamela Anderson was making it okay to be a Playmate and an actress. You know, at the time, I actually turned down Playmate. I shot my centerfold, and it was right before Pam made it okay So I was noticing that a lot of the other playmates who were trying to be actresses, they were losing jobs. Even after having booked the job, they were getting fired off sets once the producers realized that they were playmates. So I 
I backed out of the centerfold. But what I got out of that was connections. I actually met my first commercial agents through Playboy. And we didn't promote that I was a playmate or that I, you know, had worked for Playboy or anything. Um, But I did continue to do the lingerie issues as a way to pay my bills in one day so that the rest of the month I could be going out on auditions. He was married to Kimberly Hefner at the time, and she was very strict at the mansion. So when they would bring me out, they would put me up at the mansion, and I didn't have to worry about lecherous old men trying to say, well, I can help you, baby, but, you know, this is what I like. And I didn't have to worry about that because she was like, Mm-mm. anybody in the swimming pool, you got clothes on. I got a baby running around this house. Or when we would have the Sunday night movie nights, it was just his closer friends that they trusted. It wasn't really just kind of anybody who thought it would be fun to go see a bunch of hot chicks. It was people who ha- actually had integrity and had something to say in the entertainment industry. So I met some really wonderful people that way, and some of whom you know I've remained in, in contact with since. So Playboy, I loved, and I would do it again. Interesting. So what can you tell us about your experience with collaboration? I think that what you guys, what you guys have going with Spidvid is incredibly helpful to the independent producer because we can come to you and say, hey, look what we've got. And then you have a whole targeted audience that comes to you guys to say, I have this to offer, but I'm lacking in this area. And they have that to offer, but they're lacking in that area. So it does become very much a collaborative effort and with people of like mind. So that to me is invaluable. So thank you. (laughs) for existing. It is invaluable what you guys do. Very kind words, Brittany. Thank you so much. But the only way we exist is because of people like you. Well, thank you very much for saying that. So what would be the takeaway message from Brittany Powell today? Taking talent and utilizing it along with what would otherwise be considered maybe a more surface quality. Uh, People do pay attention to my looks, and I know that. But that doesn't mean that I have to only use my looks to get ahead. Um, My looks get attention, and then from that, people can really go, whoa, wait a second, she can act. Whoa, she's intelligent. That is what I appreciate about being on this planet. <laughs> All right, then speaking of looks and talent, where can we see everything Britney? Everything Britney. Well, IMDb has my entire resume, and that's, of course, Britney Powell on IMDb. Um, you can find a lot of the new stuff is going to be on the, the rom-com, the series, on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff, too, on the safetygeeksvi.com. In fact, in, I even have a little bit on Invention with Brian Forbes. I have a, a kind of a cameo in that. I play uh, I'm a guest star on that one, uh, a recurring player. Um, the Internet, I mean, anything, anything, Brittany, Google it. Google it. it. Everything will come up. What won't come up is my photos from Playboy. I don't know why. I think it's because that was back in the ancient days when they didn't have 
digital. <laughs> I just sensed a disturbance in the force. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, I'll go find some of those old pictures and scan them and put them up, and then I'll put them up under a fake name so that nobody will come after me for copyright infringement. You can say, here's Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> I'll say, Kelly... Can you just come here and say a few words standing next to me, and then I can pop up under your Google searches, too? Always thinking. Brittany Powell, thank you so much for joining us today on Spidcast. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time talking to you. Spidcast. Spidcast, brought to you by Indie Source Magazine, the fastest-growing independent filmmaker resource and the only free publication of its kind. And their mission is to bring you not only stories of the industry's highly celebrated, but also stories and insights from players in all areas of the media creation process. At IndieSource, they believe free is better. Visit them at IndieSourceMag.com. Let's continue now with the Spidcast. Joining us is actor, writer, and web creator David Beeler. David, welcome to Spidcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, David, tell us a little bit about your story. Goodness, I was I was born a poor black child. No, I'm sorry, that's already been done. Yes, <laughs> already taken. No, actually, I, I, uh, I'm an actor, a professional actor. I live out in Los Angeles. Uh, before that, I lived in London, England, for a decade. Uh, I went to a drama school over there, a conservatory, for three years, and then wound up staying and working there for for that decade <clears throat> before coming back to the States. But I was born and raised in Texas in a small town, and uh, uh, I was kind of a class clown, enjoyed making my friends laugh because I I quickly got that that uh, uh, made them like me more. And uh, there's something very powerful uh, about laughter and that it, it opens up people. Uh, there's that saying that uh, laughter is the best medicine. Um, and there, there is actually physiological evidence that that's actually very true. I did all this stuff as a kid, uh, got in local theater, did a local television show, um, and by the age of 15, I decided this is what I wanted to do. But when I was in about fifth grade, my mom used my full name, and I, I knew I was in trouble. So I'm thinking, what did I get caught doing? And she goes, I got a call from your teachers. And I'm like, oh, what did I get caught doing at school? She said, well, they're very concerned about you. And I thought, well, my grades are good. And they, she said, they think something might be wrong with your brain. And I was like, what? <laughs> so it turns out they thought I had an equilibrium problem because I had gotten so good at walking into desks, bumping into doors, and just falling over, doing these pratfalls to make my friends laugh that they thought something was actually wrong with me. Um, so I kind of blame my teachers that I don't have Jim Carrey's career because my mom told me to put the brakes on that, uh, which I did. But by the time I was 15, I knew I was going to be a professional actor, and that's what I was going to do with uh, uh, my life as a vocation. So I spent a couple of years at UT Austin in Texas on a scholarship and then uh, applied for this school in England and uh, got accepted, which was a a real coup, and I didn't realize at the time it was kind of as big a deal for me as it was going to be. Um, And then I was paying for school, so I had to pay for a lot more of school by going to this uh, conservatory in England, which was the Central School of Speech and Drama. And uh, so I wrote and produced plays in Texas to pay for my training in England. And uh, that actually worked. So it was ironic that I paid for school by doing what I was going to school to learn to do. Well, how cool is that? I'm sure this has helped throughout your career so far. It was pretty cool. It was a a big learning experience to get to school for me as it was being at school. 
and, and that was really fascinating. And some of that entrepreneurial spirit and, and production, uh, just sort of, well, all right, we're going to figure out how to make this work, has carried into doing the stuff that I do now with my uh, creating partner or creative partner, Tom Conkle, because uh, he and I do comedy, and almost all of our stuff is... Uh, is a comedy based online. Now we're going to get more into your current stuff in just a bit, but I want to hear about more of the stuff from England. This is good stuff. I had some really cool opportunities there. Uh, things like I got to play Hamlet uh, in a castle. Did a, a, a one man show called Booth about the actor Edwin Booth. Took that to the Edinburgh Festival, won an award. A director who saw this wanted to work with me. She said we need to retool the script, and before you do this show again, which was about Edwin Booth preparing to play Hamlet after his brother had assassinated Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. She said, you need to play Hamlet. I was like, well, it's on my list. And she said, no, no, you're going to do it. So I wound up getting to play Hamlet. A company I was working with, uh, touring around England doing Shakespeare, we actually got to play uh, Hamlet at Kenilworth Castle. So that was an amazing experience for me. I'll bet. So you worked your way to England, played Hamlet in a castle, no less. So in your mind, had you arrived? Were you successful? I do my goals between Christmas and New Year's every year and realized... Am I doing what I want to do? And I'm like, yeah, I'm an actor. I'm earning my living. I was like, this is great. I thought, is this really what I want to do? And I went, well, if I could do anything, I'd work in movies. And I thought, oh, well, I'm in the wrong place. Because <laughs> they don't do that many films in the UK, uh, sadly. Because when they do do them, they do them very well. So from there, I thought, okay, I'm going to pick up and uh, head back to the States. So I, I took a reconnaissance holiday came out to Los Angeles and stayed here for eight weeks with some friends of mine from drama school and, and, and found, much to my delight, that it was actually a very nice place. And in being here, one of the things that happened uh, along the way was when I first got out here, I thought, gosh, I haven't done comedy in years, and that's something I really loved. That's partly what got me into acting. So I signed up with um, L.A. Connection, which is a place out here that does improv, and uh, had found that some of the other places that are very famous for improv, you have to go through years of their training programs before you get to perform. But L.A. Connection had a fast track where you could do that within a couple of months. And so I thought, oh, well, that's what I want. So I did that. A group of us kind of got bored there, splintered off with some people from the Groundlings and created a new sketch troupe. And one of the guys from that group, which fell apart fairly quickly because different people wanted to do different things, so the group fell apart. But one of the guys later was producing a show called Beyond the Fringe, which is the seminal British review uh, that launched the careers of Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Jonathan Miller, and Alan Bennett. Uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore you may have heard of, and Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller are very big in the U.K. One is a director and one is a writer. This guy, Joe Dunn, who was producing the show, said, I need you to play the Dudley parts, because one of the improv characters I created, having lived in London, was a, uh, an out-of-work mortician. Uh, and I thought, oh, it'd be fun. I lived in South London for uh, the most number of years of, of my time in England. And I could do a very good uh, South London accent. And I thought, oh, if this guy is an out-of-work mortician, but he's on, the, he's on the dole, but he's so broke, he has to nip at the formaldehyde because he can no longer afford to go to the pub. And I thought, oh, that's a fun idea for a, an improv character. And so I brought that in. And what happened was he wound up sounding very much like Dudley Moore completely by accident. And I just saw, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this thing. And, you know, his name was Glenn Lawn, and he was the less successful brother of Forrest Lawn. And, of course, you know, he didn't hold out over Forrest, God bless him, but, uh, you know, he was very frustrated that he couldn't get things to work right. 
So everybody's like, oh, that's a great Dudley. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to do Dudley. Dudley did Dudley. So I was like, ah, back to the drawing board. But they insisted that I keep doing this character because they all thought it was very funny. So Joe knew I had done this character, and he said, I want you to play Dudley Moore in this review show. And I was like, okay, and you're going to meet this guy who will play the Peter Cook parts. Uh, Tom Conkle, he's very funny. I think you'll get on. And at the uh, read-through, sure enough, Tom and I got on like a house on fire. And in doing that show, which won a, a pick of the week in the uh, L.A. Weekly out here, Tom said, we need to do the two-hander that uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore did called Good Evening. They did this on Broadway. And I was like, okay. And Tom said, no, no, we're going to do it. And I said, okay. And then uh, two weeks later, he called and he said, okay, I've booked a theater. We're doing the show. And I said, oh, all right. When? In two weeks. I was like, well, goodness, we probably should rehearse. <laughs> oh, we, we got the show up on its feet real fast. Uh, had a great time. And then in the process of, of doing that show, we kept kind of improvising and playing with those characters. And, and we decided that, hey, we could actually continue playing and develop that into uh, some of our own original material, which we did, and that show was called Good Night. And that was basically a tribute to Good Evening, the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore show. And <clears throat> in that process, Tom and I found that we worked really well together as a writing team, that we were very simpatico. Um, and about that same time, I, I had written the stuff that paid for my training, but I, I don't write a whole lot because it feels like work. And uh, I've had a number of people go, you're good at writing, you should write more. And so I was looking for a way to enjoy writing more. And then Tom showed up, and we had a great time writing. It was just a laugh, and we would catch stuff and try and get it in the computer while it was fresh and still making us laugh. And uh, so <clears throat> we began to collaborate and write. And around about the same time, I joined their sketch troupe called Lester McFlapp. Um, and we were doing live sketch shows. We did them in different places around the country at different festivals and, and all around L.A. And... Uh, about that time, uh, a guy came to one of our shows and said, I think we should do a television pilot. And we said, okay. So we wound up producing this uh, TV pilot called McFlap, with an exclamation point. And uh, not the musical, but just McFlap. So we produced this pilot, and it was greenlit for all of a, a long weekend before it fell through the cracks in the Vivendi sale, uh, when uh, Universal uh, was bought by Vivendi and uh, a lot of these other TV uh, network cable networks that they owned, all seismic shifts, people losing their jobs, and so we fell through the cracks in that sale, uh, which was very frustrating. But at that time, we had already begun doing some uh, sort of interactive uh, media stuff in our live shows and filming things and putting them in our live shows. So when the Internet began to come out with an opportunity where there were the, the bandwidth was large enough that you could actually post something and have people watch it without it being completely stilted, the very early days of YouTube, then we were like, oh, well, we should put something up. So Tom and I did a, a sketch, and we put it out, <clears throat> and I think it was in a month or two, we got like 500,000 hits. So here's half a million people watching our comedy, which was more than had seen all of our live shows combined over the entire time we'd been working together before that. We were like, wow, this is powerful. So we formed Pithy Productions, and the idea with that was to keep it short and pithy, because at the time that was what it had to be, uh, as dictated by the bandwidth. And, and a guy had approached us about uh, doing stuff for mobile, and that was still way too early for mobile to have satisfactory mobile 
video. Uh, nowadays, you have that uh, quite readily, but at the time, that was sort of more of an idea than a reality. But um, we got this idea of, oh, we could do this, and we can kind of build a footprint here and then expand it out and hopefully go into new media, create uh, our brand really strong, and then take that brand and move it into uh, old media or the more established media, however you want to look at that. So that's kind of partly how we came to be and how we came to be uh, doing what we've been doing. So is Inventions an outgrowth of that relationship with Tom? Invention with Brian Forbes grew out of a sketch show. Uh, Tom and I were doing a, a two-hand sketch show, and Tom had this idea for this crazy inventor. And, you know, uh, being interviewed in this show, that's, you know, the guy who's running the show is trying to do a very serious show, but his guest is just a wackadoo. And we did it as a, as, a, as a sketch, and I thought it was a great sketch. And it always got a great reaction. And at one point, Tom said, let's, let's film that. And I'm like, okay. You know, we were doing these little short, pithy one-offs. And so, fine. And then Tom later said, I think we should do that as a series, because we had done another live sketch show, and we had done another invention. And Tom said, let's do this as a series. And I said, I don't think it will sustain as a series, Tom, because it's a little just, you know, they're little snippets. You know, it, they are really just little sketches, and there's no kind of continuation in that. I don't, I don't see that being a series. And, and I said, and, you know, I think people will stale of, you know, the same thing again and again. And Tom said, no, 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 I've got so many ideas, they won't. And I'm like, all right, okay. And the great thing about Tom and I is if either one of us feels passionately about something, the other one usually goes, all right, I trust you. And, and that's come from years of working together. And I was like, okay, if you really feel like that, let's do it. So, um, so we did. We began doing more and more and more of these. And I have grown to love, love, love the show. It's one of my favorite things we do. Uh, because I love the relationship between Brian Forbes, who's desperately trying to do something legitimate. And, and you know, uh, I think for uh, a lot of artists, that craving of, of legitimacy, of I, I want to be accepted and do something that's good and, and, and you know, be uh, lauded by my peers. You know, uh, most artists have that in some capacity once they get involved in their, uh, their disciplines or their craft that they want their peers to recognize them, hence the proliferation of award shows. <laughs> so Brian Forbes is deadly serious. And then you have this force of nature, which is Sir Reginald Bohaino, who's just uh, out of his mind, or eccentric, as they say in England. And I think the, the combination of that is, is, is really wonderful. And it's just a very simple idea uh, that relies purely on the writing and the performing, and the relationship between these characters. And David, how did you find your audience? Or, or better yet, how did they find you? We call it our web series that could. You know, it's like the little engine that gets over the hill, because for years we would just do them because we wanted to, and, and we never had any sort of game plan or sort of, we must, you know, we must market this and put it out there and figure out how we're doing this. It was really just, we were doing it. And we've never, ever gotten a bad review We've gotten tons of great press. Everybody seems to love the show, um, and and we've only gotten positive feedback on it. You know, and, and the, a few years in on doing the show, we were like, oh, you know, we probably should look at this. Um, you know, another positive review would pop up, and that's a neat thing about the internet. In a lot of traditional media, you know, once you have an opening, you know, you air the show, and then it's over, and maybe it comes out again in rerun, but. It's looked on as a sort of second tier because it's already been out. 
Whereas with the Internet, uh, one of the things we've discovered is there are waves of discovery. We had this very recently where we don't quite know why, but on YouTube our views peaked into the hundreds of thousands out of nowhere. Just suddenly we were getting like hundreds of thousands of views in a week. Uh, and it just sort of had this little peak, you know. Uh, and, and, and it was like, well, that's interesting. We don't quite know why, but somebody somewhere might have discovered it, you know, uh, put it on Facebook and it just spread virally or something. We don't quite know what that is, uh, although we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> but isn't that one of the coolest things about being involved in new media, that your show has literally forever to find an audience, and there's not one guy in the ivory tower saying, no, this will not be made. That is phenomenal. Uh, never in history has there been a more democratic platform where you can put what you want to say out there and people vote on it with their eyeballs. So that's incredibly powerful. As you said, there's, there's no man in the ivory tower. There are no suits going, no, no, we're not going to do this. There aren't gatekeepers other than people wanting to watch it or not wanting to watch it. Um, and, and that's amazing. That's crazy cool. The fact that, like I said, you know, Tom and I were blown away. And this is many years ago. Uh, many years ago, like I think 2003 or four, when we put up a video and it got you know half a million views in a month or so, and we went, "Wow, that's amazing." You know, the fact that that many people could see your work. Here's a fun story. One of the things we did is called the Prostate PSA, and it's a uh, basically a public service announcement uh, for men's health. And we did this thing. It's pretty funny. It's out there. Prostate PSA, Dave and Tom. Go check it out. But we did it, put it out. Uh, Several months later, an old girlfriend of mine from Texas emailed me that her husband had just gotten that video sent to him from his friend in South Africa um, because he was having a prostate issue. And uh, it was sort of one of these things where it's like, wow, that's circumnavigated the globe to come back to someone I know who says, oh, my God, I saw that in you. And that's happened two or three times where people I know have said, oh, my dad just got this thing, then it's you. Um, and somebody that I didn't know had sent it to him. And then it came back to me that you know they had discovered it. So that's crazy cool. The downside of this very open democratic uh, um platform is that there are no gatekeepers, by which I mean, for an audience, you sometimes have to sift through a lot of dirt to find a lump of coal, much less a diamond, because there is no barrier at all for submission. You know, so anybody can do anything they want and put it up there. And so, you know, sometimes you have to kind of wade through some not so good stuff to find the good stuff. However, I would much rather have it this way than uh, than than the other way, where there's you know who, who's deciding whether you get to watch that or not, um, and then the good stuff tends to get the cream will rise to the top. The good stuff tends to get referred, it gets noticed. People write about it, blog about it, other people share it. So in that way, the good stuff t- tends to rise anyway. Right. You know, not only does the good stuff rise, but the good stuff gets very strong word of mouth. The best advertising for any business at any time in history. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's where I would say if, if anybody is going to uh, attempt to create video or do a web series, <clears throat> there are a few things I would consider uh, moving into it at this time. First of all is just to look around and see what's being done and, and try to find a way to either 
do something that's not being done. And part of that's just because th- this is an open platform, so no one's going to say no. So this is a chance to do something different, as opposed to trying to recreate a television show without the resources to do it, which a lot of people do, and and then it looks like a uh, a very sad, sick cousin of of something that you could see on television. Do something else. You know, find a way to use your voice to express your creativity, follow your passion, but do something that's a bit different. Or if you're going to do something that's been done, you know, for example, like another zombie story or vampire story, which are just you know ripe at the moment, then do that really, really well. And one of the interesting things right now is because uh, there are so many good shows out there, production values have gotten very good very quickly. Uh, it's sometimes very amazing what people can do with very little resources and still have it look very close to being a TV show. So uh, that is something just to bear in mind, you know, that to be competitive if you want to, because you can also just put stuff out there and allow this to be a type of film school, you know, where this is where you're expressing yourself, trying things out, learning, and put it up there. And if somebody likes it other than your friends and family, cool. And this is like film school. You know, a lot of film school films get made not to be watched necessarily, but for the learning process that they give. So uh, you could either do this to try and build an audience and, and have people follow your shows or just for your learning, uh, learning curve. And actually both of them will happen. If you're going for an audience, you're going to learn stuff. You cannot help but learn stuff. Now, talking about that very topic, where can we follow your stuff? Now, talking about that very topic, where can we follow your stuff? Well, if you would like to watch some of our shows, the easiest place to go to is DaveAndTom.com. That's D-A-V-E-A-N-D-T-O-M.com. DaveAndTom.com, because everything's parked right there. Uh, You can also go to our YouTube channel. We're on uh, Vimeo, Coldcast. We're on over 200 portals, so just do a search for Dave and Tom, and you'll find our videos. You cannot help but find them. We are, we're out there. <laughs> um, and that's amazing. Uh, we actually have had, uh, we did this one thing about a genie, and we did a search one time because we were talking to a, a, a new media agent, and we were like, okay, h- how much are we out there? Let's, let's find so we can report back and say this is where we are. And we did the search, and on page, I don't know, 40-something or 50-something deep into Google, uh, we were on a, a French genie fetishist site. <laughs> what? <laughs> but our video was parked on a fetishist site for people who are into genies because um, we'd had a, a sketch about a genie popping out of a bottle. And we were like, what the hey? <laughs> so that is the other wonderful thing is you'll sh- you'll turn up in these wonderfully obscure and bizarre places (laughs) so let me rub that lantern and wish for a parting shot some words of wisdom a golden nugget perhaps of advice well i think my my biggest kernel of advice is 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 one of the um signatures on my dave and tom email which is a quote from joseph campbell follow your bliss and it's one of the easiest and hardest things to do uh the beauty of of the web space is that you can create whatever you want. And and that's both, like Spider-Man, an awesome responsibility. It's a power, and with that power comes a responsibility. But if you follow your bliss, you set out doing what you really want to do, what makes your heart sing. And the reason it's easy and difficult is because, yeah, that's easy to tap into. And it's difficult because there will be 
many hurdles. Michael just said, well, this seems like it's been a pretty easy process. No, no. A lot of it's really hard work. But like playing a game, you know, like if you play soccer or tennis or any game, when you're playing it, you're putting a ton of energy into that. But it doesn't feel like work because you want to play that game. You're having fun. So follow your bliss. Have that fun. Follow the thing that makes your heart sing. Um, and have the courage of your conviction to start. You, there is no path. It, 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 you know, everybody's path will be different. So if you look at somebody else and they're doing something, you're going, that works, I need to do what they do. No, you need to follow your bliss, follow your path, follow your knowing, because your path will be your own. And you can't look at somebody else's and try and emulate that. Learn from them, absolutely. But have the courage of your convictions to know that you've got to do what you need to do. And, and, and knowing that is sometimes very hard because there are so many different influences that can push you in this way or that. Um, and, and I think that, that is it. Like I say, it's a very simple but difficult thing to follow your bliss. And that would be my primary advice to somebody uh, wanting to do anything creative, whether it's making web videos, painting, doing music, an acting career. You know, it's, it's that. Have that courage to start and then continue, and as you continue, you know, really tune into to what makes your heart sing and constantly pay attention to that. Best advice I've heard in a while. David, thank you so much for joining us today on Spidcast. You are very welcome. And, and also, I think you need to check out uh, the websites like Spidvid that allows you to join up with other people who are trying to collaborate and do the same things you are. Because if you're making anything with a camera, a video, or a film, it's a collaborative process. You can't do this by yourself. And you're going to need to find those people that are your peeps that share your vision uh, and, and want to do similar things to you. Uh, so I would say use those resources. Absolutely. Make use of those resources. Use us often and as you wish. Thanks for listening to our Spidcast show. We appreciate your time and attention. You can now join the conversation at spidvid.com or on our Spidvid blog. And you can join our collaborative filmmaking community at spidvid.com. Tune in next month for another entertaining and informative episode of Spidcast. Spidcast.